Welcome to San Francisco Valley's Points of View podcast. On this episode, you'll hear from Ellen Peel, Professor of Comparative and World Literatures from San Francisco State University. This talk was recorded on February 22nd, 2017, before a performance of Liam Scarlett's Frankenstein. Hope you enjoy. Good evening. My name is Cecilia Beam, and I coordinate many of San Francisco Ballet's audience engagement programs. Thank you for joining us tonight at San Francisco Ballet's Points of View Lecture Series. Tonight, we welcome our partner, Litquake, now in its 18th year as the premier literary festival in both the Bay Area and in 15 cities worldwide. Welcome. This program is one of many offered by Litquake throughout the year, and we welcome you to visit litquake.org to see the other events they have in store. And now San Francisco Ballet and Litquake are pleased to present tonight's lecture, Frankenstein at the Ballet, Mary Shelley and Her Hideous Progeny. Our speaker is Ellen Peel, who is a professor in the Department of Comparative and World Literature in the Department of English at San Francisco State University. She specializes in literary theory, literature by women, science fiction, and utopian literature. Her work on Frankenstein is part of her pro project, Franken-genre, in which she studies literature and film in relation to what she calls the constructed body. Please welcome Ellen Peel. Thank you for that introduction. I'm happy to be here tonight, and before I start, I'll just elaborate on what Cecilia said. I'll speak for about a half an hour, and then around 6.30, if you have questions to ask, you can make your way to the microphone in the center aisle, and around 6.35, I'll take questions if you have any. We all know, or think we know, who Frankenstein is. Mary Shelley's scientist and his grotesque creature have stepped beyond the bounds of the original book and taken on a life of their own. They've appeared in countless sequels, cartoons, plays, songs, and of course movies, including Young Frankenstein, Frankenweenie about a dachshund, and the surprisingly touching Frankenhooker. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Um, but Frankenstein and his creature have also gone farther, becoming part of our vocabulary. A term like Frankenfood immediately evokes something artificial and menacing. If someone refers to the detonation of the first atomic bomb as a Frankenstein moment, we picture unintended consequences, terrifying ones. The story of Frankenstein has become a modern myth. Today, I hope to explore some of the reasons that it resonates so powerfully, why it has brought to life so many avatars. I'll touch on several topics, the origins of the novel, the relations between the novel and the ballet, a few of the major themes of the novel, the question of whom we admire or sympathize with, if anyone, and then I'll also briefly refer to some other works in what I call Franken-genre. So to begin with the origins of the novel, I'm first focusing on causes, on origins, which after all are the main themes of the book. It's about how a human comes into being, not the way we're all familiar with, the stork doesn't bring him, 
um, but in a sensational, unique way. I'll talk about four influences on the book. Mary Shelley's life, scientific advances in her day, philosophical tendencies of her day, and mythical and literary narratives that influenced her. So, to begin with Mary Shelley's life. Now, normally I don't discuss authors' lives much. I think it's more important to focus on their works, and I'm especially suspicious of some discussions of female authors' lives, because some critics get obsessed with the woman's life and dismiss her work. Nevertheless, in this case, uh, Shelley's life is very relevant to this particular novel, and also it's really strange. She lived from 1797 to 1851. Her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin. Her father was William Godwin. Both were radicals, although sometimes in their own lives they were more liberals. Both wrote fiction as well as political theory. And uh, Mary Wollstonecraft is often considered one of the early feminists. She wrote about the rights of women. In giving birth to Mary Shelley, at that time the baby was Mary Godwin, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft died. She died a few days later of an infection. So her daughter, the second Mary, the double of the first Mary, never really got to know, never got to know her mother. And although obviously it wasn't her fault, she wasn't guilty of her mother's death, still from the very beginning, there was the idea that birth can mean death. Birth can cause something horrible to happen to the parent. Later, Mary eloped with and ultimately married Percy Shelley, the British romantic poet. When they eloped, he was still married to another woman who then committed suicide. So again, something that we think of as perhaps joyous and loving had a fatal result. Together, Mary and Percy um, had several children. Also, she had several miscarriages. Only one of her children lived to adulthood. So again, uh, being pregnant isn't necessarily a joyous, life-giving state. It could lead to the death of a child, or to the death of a parent. So you can see how some of these themes play into the plot of Frankenstein. Now I'll turn to scientific advances. Chemistry, electricity, and vitalism were attracting a lot of interest at that time. In Mary Shelley's introduction to the book, she mentions galvanism, uh, getting muscles to move by means of electricity. She mentions Erasmus Darwin, an ancestor of Charles Darwin, who was interested in reproduction, where life comes from. In the late 18th century, Joseph Watt perfected the steam engine, catalyzing much of the Industrial Revolution. Joseph Priestley was working on electric electricity. And both Mary and Percy Shelley were active in intellectual circles that were uh, had an amateur interest in these things. So she was fairly well informed 
about science of her day. Now, to turn to philosophical tendencies. On the one hand, the 18th century was a bright time, the Enlightenment. It was a time of rationality, optimism, belief in progress, and the growth of knowledge. On the other hand, the late 18th century saw the birth of Gothic literature with its macabre and violent melodrama, its eerie mysteries, its emphasis on feelings such as horror. The Gothic typically brings to life our unconscious, our wishes, our fears. Mary Shelley's husband, uh, as being one of the British romantics, drew on the Gothic to some extent in his own writing. So Shelley's, Mary Shelley's novel, first conceived in 1816, expertly draws on both traditions. An Enlightenment scientist, not a magician, but a scientist, seeks knowledge, but he uses it to create something from a Gothic nightmare. Another way to think of this duality is many people consider the book the first work of science fiction. So there it involves science and then imagination, fiction, something much less controllable. I'll move on now to the mythical and literary sources of the book. Shelley, who used to read by her mother's grave, was very well read. I'll just focus on two of her sources, both of which are mentioned on the title page of the book. Um, and both involve overreachers and the punishment that these figures get for having overreached. The subtitle of the novel is The Modern Prometheus, a character from Greek mythology. There are various versions of the Prometheus story, but he's best known for rebelling against Zeus. Prometheus was a titan. So interestingly, although he was refer rebelling against a higher authority figure, he was actually from the older generation. The, the titans uh, generated the Greek gods. In any case, Prometheus was doing what he wasn't supposed to do. Some versions say that he created humanity. Others say that he merely took fire from the gods and gave it to humanity, benefiting humans, hurting the gods. In any case, Prometheus was horribly punished for this by Zeus. He was chained to a rock, and every day an eagle would come and eat out his liver. Every night the liver would regenerate, and the same thing would happen over and over. In some versions of the story, Hercules finally rescues Prometheus. The romantics were very taken with the story of Prometheus, and based on Aeschylus's Prometheus Unbound, Percy Shelley wrote his own Prometheus Unbound. The other work that is mentioned on the title page is the 17th century British epic Paradise Lost by John Milton. This was an extremely influential work in uh, British literature, as you may know, it involves actually the loss of two paradises. It's a retelling of the Bible story. First, God's favorite angel, Lucifer, the light bearer, rebels against him and gets sent down to hell. So uh, Satan loses paradise. Secondly, Adam and Eve eat from the tree, having been tempted by Satan, 
and they're kicked out of Eden, so they lose paradise as well. This creation story is very relevant to the story of Frankenstein's creature. In addition, um, some feminist critics have written about how Milton himself was an authority figure who loomed over later British authors and had to be rebelled against. Now that I've introduced four of the influences on Shelley's book, I'd like to spend a little time on what she herself said about its origins in her introduction to the revised edition, 1831. She conceived of the book in 1816. It was published in 1818 and then revised for 1831. She said, the first sentence of her introduction says, the publishers expressed a wish that I should furnish them with some account of the origin of the story. So the very first sentence in her introduction includes the word origin and hints at the idea that maybe origins of people are similar to origins of stories. The entire introduction is fairly self-deprecating because, because at that time uh, it wasn't proper for ladies to write, especially for publication, especially something so hideous, to use Shelley's own word. What happened was she, Shelley, Percy Shelley, Byron, and some other people were in Switzerland and had a ghost story contest. None of the others really came up with anything. She says, the illustrious poets, annoyed by the platitude of prose, speedily relinquished their uncongenial task. In other words, Byron and Shelley blew it off, but she stuck with it. But she says, I tried in vain to come up with a story. She went to bed and had a kind of waking dream where she envisioned the, the beginnings of the creation of the creature. She ends her introduction by bidding goodbye to what she calls my hideous progeny. So she herself is making the analogy between uh, creating a creature and creating a book. One reason I've talked a fair amount about origins is that it ties in with my conception of tragedy. Uh, by tragedy, I don't just mean when something sad happens or simply that there are a lot of dead bodies on the stage at the end of a Shakespeare play. I agree with Aristotle that it has to do with pity and terror, but I also think that, for me, tragedy has to do with origins. It's a tragedy when you, afterward you keep asking yourself, why did things go so horribly wrong? And you find yourself saying, oh, if only this hadn't happened. Or, no, wait, if only that ha hadn't happened. Oh, no, if only that hadn't happened. But it's an infinite regress. You can never solve it. And that's one of the tragic things about it. So it's a, a continued asking of questions about origins. Now, various uh, reasons are proposed in the book for why things go so horribly wrong. Uh, spoiler alert, they do. You, you probably knew that already. Um, if you remember in West Side Story, the Officer Krupke song, where one of the gang mem members says, I'm depraved on account of I'm deprived, um, that's kind of what the creature says. He says, I was innocent um, until people started treating me badly, and now misery has made me a fiend. So that's one origin of the problems. One thing I really like about this production, the 
uh, of the story, this ballet, is, as you'll see, there's tremendous sky uh, looming over everything, and it's gloomy and ominous. So the excellent program notes suggest that that represents nature in contrast to the Frankenstein manner. You can also think of it as fate. I mean, just from the very beginning, there's something wrong that's looming over everything else. And fit, the words fate or destiny appear on every other page of the novel. Then there's some more trivial reasons. So Victor says, well, my father told me not to read this book, but he didn't tell me the right way, so I went ahead and read it. I mean, anyway, that's one of his excuses for, for what goes wrong. So now that we've discussed origins a bit, I want to talk some about the relations between the novel and ballet, and in this ballet in particular. First, similarities. I think this ballet does a great job of conveying the emotions of the book. Also, the book is about the body. It's about seeing, and it's about seeing a body. And ballet in general is about bodies and seeing So it's a perfect medium to convey this. One aspect of sight in the novel is that Victor thinks everything's great until the creature wakes up, until it becomes animated. And it stirs a little bit, and then it opens its eyes. And at that point and later points, it looks at Victor with yellow, watery, but speculative eyes. So it's not just that Victor looks at the creature. The creature looks back at him, and it's thinking. It's not just an object. It's a subject. It's not just an it. It's a he. And that's, and then seeing turns out to be crucial. You'll see it in the ballet and in the novel. When people think the creature's ugly, everything goes wrong. So visual media are a great way to convey this novel, especially uh, media like a movie that involve movement, especially a ballet that's performed live when you're in the room with that movement. And I have to say, when the creature comes to life in this production, it's really awe-inspiring. I I told my students it was awesome, and then I had to say, well, I don't mean it's like, awesome. I mean, it's awesome. (laughs) So it it works really well in a theater. Also, um, the ballet stresses vision you'll see a couple scenes in an anatomy theater, which reminds us of where we are. We're in a theater looking at bodies. Now, there's some differences, of course, between the book and the ballet. You have to change the plot somewhat. I think that seeing the creature can make him seem scarier. Uh, My students tend to sympathize with the creature as the victim, uh, and they criticize Victor. But I say... And so it's sort of like, oh, poor little monster. If I saw him, I'd be nice to him. But if you actually see someone that looks so strange, you might not react that way. Another big difference between the book and the ballet, of course, is that the ballet has no words. Um, and that's a, so that loses one thing that's in the book, which is that it's very significant that the creature has no name. In fact, that's probably one reason everybody keeps calling the creature Frankenstein. No, that's the scientist. It's not the the creature. Um, So one thing that's important in the novel is the creature narrates a lot of it. He's very eloquent. You lose that in a lot of the the movies. Interestingly, in 
the ballet, of course, nobody talks. I mean, you can imagine that they're talking, but you don't hear any words. So, in a sense, as in the novel, the creature and Victor are on the same footing again, because neither one is using words, rather than one talking in a movie and the other one grunting. Now, I want to quickly mention a few other themes to, to look for that are important in the novel and in the ballet. One is doubling. Your program notes talk about how sometimes Victor and the creature are similar in their uh, dance movements. Look for the use of Victor's coat as, as well, or clothing in general, how that relates to doubling. There's a lot of doubling in the book. The creature himself is kind of an English major. He says, um, I read Paradise Lost. I'm like Adam, you're like God, except you made me ugly and rejected, so I'm like Satan, and you've rejected me. The creature draws parallels. Um, there are a number of other parallels with, with Eve, with Mary Shelley, etc., in terms of creators, victims, guilt. One aspect of the doubling is the incest theme. In neither the book nor the ballet is there actual incest, but there are all these hints of it, and that's a very Gothic theme. For instance, uh, Victor marries Elizabeth, his adoptive sister. So she's not his literal sister, but still, it's a little weird to marry somebody who's kind of your sister. And there's some other things like that in the, the novel. I'm emphasizing this because it's the thing about incest is that there's Somebody's playing a, dub, a double role, and it's too ingrown. And I think that's part of why the tragedy happens. Victor is working alone. He, he doesn't have a partner. He especially doesn't have a female partner. He's too isolated, and that leads to some of the tragedy. Another important theme in both is rebirth. So first, the creature. In a sense, he's a reborn version of all those corpses that got cut up. Um, I mean, you know, this person's hand gets reborn and that person's nose gets reborn and it's so not in their entirety, but uh, in a grotesque way, he, he is a form of reborn person. In the novel, uh, as in many 19th century novels, people faint all the time. Uh, Victor faints frequently and then is revivified or restored or he'll fall lifeless and then get back up. So there are little mini rebirths there. And I also want to suggest, as some other critics have, that there's a weird way in which the creature reminds us of Christ. So in Christianity, you can be a reborn Christian. After you die, you can be reborn living eternally. And Christ himself is literally reborn. So it's almost like the creature is a parody of Christ. Uh, in any case, it's an important theme. The last theme that I want to mention is to use the Freudian term, the return of the repressed. One reason I think this novel has been so powerful over the years is that it's very metaphorical. You can read the creature as a metaphor for all sorts of things. Um, he's been read as a representation of the mob. People around 1800 were very afraid that uh, the lower classes would rise up with a bloody result like the French Revolution. Um, or in, they were just afraid of the, the populace in that way. He's been read as a metaphor for the passions or for the id. 
as a metaphor for the imagination that we can't completely control. That's who Mary Shelley says wrote her book. I didn't write that book, don't blame me. Um, He's even been read as a metaphor for the literal because he's so earthy and uh, concrete. So he's ironically a metaphor for the literal. In, In particular, in this ballet, I think they do a great job of having him represent the return of repressed memories, um, good and bad. You'll, you'll see actually both kinds of memories coming up in the, the ballet, and the bad ones are associated, of course, with the creature. And he also represents Victor's guilt, his conscience, coming back to haunt him. So there's a, a deep psychological level as well as just the scary horror level at work here. As I said, I, I think one of the key questions in any version of the story is, whom do you admire? Whom do you sympathize with? Victor or the creature? Both? Maybe neither? And in all these avatars that gets played with, some sympathize with one, some with the other. So that's something to really keep an eye out for as, as you watch the ballet. Finally, I'll say a little bit about the broader genre that I see this book belonging to. Uh, what I'm writing about in my own research I call Franken-genre because obviously this book is the, the locus classicus of all this. I'm looking at what I call the constructed body. Three kinds. First, physically constructed from scratch, like Frankenstein's creature. Um, secondly, physically constructed by modifying an existing body. And third, mentally constructed by projecting onto someone. So if you're familiar with uh, the 19th century German writer E.T.A. Hoffman and his story, The Sandman, that ties into some of this. That's the story that Freud refers to in his essay, The Uncanny. Also, it's the source of one of the tales in the opera, Tales of Hoffman. It's also the source of the ballet, Coppelia. And uh, in this story, two men make an automaton which, in a sense, comes to life. So that's constructing a body from scratch. There's also mental construction because a human man projects onto this being that it's a human woman, and he falls in love with it. The, uh, in Franken-genre, obviously it's a fictional genre, but it's becoming more and more true as we have face transplants, clones, uh, more and more genetic modification and so on. So in any case, I'd urge you to think about this story in broader ways going beyond Frankenstein. So to summarize, we've looked at the origins of the novel, its relations with the ballet, a few of the major themes, the question of whom we admire or sympathize with, and how it ties in with a broader genre, with Franken-genre. So I'll be happy to take questions if anyone wants to come to the microphone in the center here. I see some people walking away from the microphone. That's... <laughs> Here we have a possible person. 
Hi. Thank you for your insights. And now, on a personal note, I want to know who you sympathize with. <laughs> That's a great question. Well, I would say it varies from time to time, but I'm really annoyed with Victor, I gotta say. I mean, when I, I won't give away too much of the plot, but when this one person gets executed for something that's indirectly Victor's fault, he says, oh, I feel worse than her. Come on. Um, so he's, he's kind of Mr. Narcissism. But I get kind of annoyed with the creature, too, because he says, um, you know, I, I didn't do anything wrong, and that's not quite true. I mean, he, he does. He is a noble savage, 18th century concept. He eats nuts and berries. He shops at Whole Foods. But then... But then he does kill a number of people. So I'd say it ranges between sympathizing with the creature and sympathizing with nobody. Yeah. Is there another question here? Yes. How old was Mary Shelley when she uh, completed the book? And did it take weeks, months, or years to do that? Okay. She was born in 1797 and conceived of it in uh, that ghost story was in 1816, so she was only 19. And then it came out a couple years later, I think the January 1st, maybe, of 1818. So she was still, like, only 21 or something when it actually came out. And it first came out anonymously, but, you know, there are degrees of anonymity. So it was by a teenager, a well-read teenager. Yes. Now, thank you for your comments. It's very interesting. Um, I'm still, it's kind of, I'm kind of a fan of horror and science fiction since I was young. And I don't know of any other classical story that's this type written by a woman. And I don't know of any other story that's so grotesque, even more written by a woman. I'm just astounded that of all the Dracula and all these stories, you have this woman writing Frankenstein, perhaps the most grotesque of all. I don't... I don't understand how that happened. And maybe you could say a few more words about that. Well, that's the exact question that she is attempting to answer in this introduction. Uh, she says, people have frequently asked me how I, then a young girl, could something like dilate upon such a hideous topic. Um, I don't know the answer, but I'll guess it's partly, I think her unconscious coming out. One way to think about it is that she's making a stand. Women can be romantics too. We can be as scary as the men and as daring and transgressive. On the other hand, some people read this book as an anti-romantic book, that Victor is like all these guys who are getting in trouble, and she's saying, look what happens if you do this. So I can. she was in this world very um, political. There were a lot of guillotines and whatnot, just shortly before she wrote this. But the question is, how is she evaluating those things? So I can see why she'd mention them. It's kind of hard to tell what her attitude is toward all that, that hideousness. Yes, another question? Thank you for your insights on the book and the story. I was wondering if you'd ever seen the movie Gothic, which is them spending that weekend on Lake Geneva and conceiving of it and all the nightmares, and it seemed a little hallucinogenic and stuff like that. From, from what 
they portray in the film, it seems to really feed her story. I wonder what you thought of that. Okay, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie, but as I recall it, it mixes the true story of these people with the Frankenstein story as well? Yes. Yeah. So um, I think that kind of answers the previous person's question, that they had this melodramatic life full of experimentation, and you know they say that Byron committed incest and all this strange stuff going on, so... It was just a step beyond realism is, is one way to, to think about it. Yeah, I should go back and watch that movie. It's very interesting. And when you were mentioning about incest, they have Mary Shelley's half-sister who's having uh, an affair with Byron and then uh, who eventually then has an affair with Shelley. I mean, it's, it's a webbed mess. Yes, yes, <laughs> then, yes. Oh, and then, too, uh, another fascinating thing about the scientific part is I believe... Byron's daughter was the first woman to be well-known in mathematics, and she may be the mother of computers or something? Yes, yes, Ada Lovelace, his, his only legitimate daughter, uh, worked with Charles Babbage. She had a gambling problem. That was her motivation for being a tech whiz. But, but yes, she's in some ways. So the, um, there's a computer language named Ada after her. Yeah. So Thank that's you. very interesting. Let's take one more quick question, and then we need to leave, or else I'll have to do the dancing, which you don't want to see. <laughs> Thank you very much for the story you've constructed for us here. And uh, I wonder, you haven't mentioned drugs as an inspiration or influence in that wild time in Geneva. Um, I don't know one way or the other about drugs. Um, I do know that uh, Confessions of an Opium, Opium Eater was written by someone whose name I'm forgetting around that time. So um, there was some use of drugs, but I don't know the facts about what was going on uh, at the ghost story context, contest. So um, I should say, if you want me want to ask me any more questions I might not know the answer to, you're welcome to uh, contact me through San Francisco State. You can look up the English or the Comparative Literature Department, and my email is there, and I would be happy to uh, carry on this conversation. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Points of View podcast from San Francisco Ballet. For more podcasts, other engagement programming, or more information, please check out sfballet.org.